welcome to Rising. We have, well, it's a show. That's what we have today. <laughs> and it's a show that has Brianna in it. Hello. Hello, Robbie. It's good to be here. Good to have you. What's going on? Well, later in the show, we'll be joined by Lieutenant Colonel Daniel Davis to discuss his latest uh, piece for 1945. Teslin Figaro will join us as well for uh, a follow-up on Kanye West's newest controversy. But first, yesterday, Kiev was rocked as part of a multi-city bombing campaign that saw at least 14 people killed and over 100 civilians injured across Ukraine. Russia President Vladimir Putin claimed responsibility for the explosions, which he says were retaliation for last week's, quote, terrorist bombing of a bridge linking Crimea to Russia. President Zelensky says the attacks are further proof that Ukraine's Western allies need to invest in the country's air defense system. After speaking with Zelensky yesterday, President Biden condemned Russia's bombing as, quote, utter brutality and pledged continued economic, humanitarian and security assistance to Ukraine. Yeah, so this is still going on, obviously, um, you know, new developments in the war in Ukraine, um, developments that I, I think uh, of most interest to us in the U.S. is the very escalated concern about um, a, a nuclear crisis as Putin is increasingly, theoretically at least, increasingly cornered, finding no way out. Um, obviously, that's still a very slim chance, but it's more of a chance than any of us would want to contemplate. And, you know, we need to find Ukraine has performed very, from a military standpoint, very well, clearly, in this conflict, especially as of late, taken back a lot of territory. But we can't just, you know, continue in an unlimited fashion supporting this effort. Like, it, it is time for diplomacy. You know, I keep saying that. I mean, like, it's, yeah. no matter what happens, that's what I say. Well, but that also, is just true. Take a, take a step back for a second. I mean, the developments over the last few days have been not just the escalation in terms of potential nuclear escalation that I think we were, have been very correct to talk about and keep front of mind for people. So, I mean, thank you for bringing that up again. But also, it's this escalation on the ground that I think is putting a finer point on what the stakes are here for the human lives at, at, at stake. The characterization, the, the, the bridge, the bridge bombing. First, last week we talked about the sabotage of Nord, Nord Stream 2 and who was responsible right. for that, and still we have no takers on that. The bridge bombing is a very different situation, where it was a kind of a su suicide bomber style uh, event, where a truck driver drove the, the bomb on the bridge, three civilian deaths. It was really gruesome footage to watch. And it is not the kind of, it's, it's really regretfully the kind of event that we're very used to seeing in different kind, parts of the world, but I think had a, had a visceral effect on folks because, unfairly, I just want to emphasize, mm -hmm. uh, but because it is in Europe, perhaps, and in familiar settings, and it felt relatable and really proximate. What is so interesting to me Alexander Vidman said he'd been dreaming of this exactly, moment on Twitter. Exactly, this really odd, jingoistic, almost, dare I say, kind of a bloodthirsty approach to these, this kind of an escalation, which feels to me almost more dangerous. I won't, it's not obviously literally more dangerous than the loss of life itself, but that's, that's preceding something particularly insidious. And then that obviously triggered a wave of counterattacks from Russia, which are being characterized as disproportionate yeah. or somehow unfair. And obviously, I don't want anybody to be right. killing anybody, right. and that's why we should be talking about de-escalation. But it is, it is weird to be so openly embracing the idea of war and conflict and then being so 
kind of futzed about the idea of the re retaliation. Like this is this this right. is what it means to be an open armed conflict with another person. And yes, ultimately, if it continues to escalate, we all have to deal with the consequences of the potential nuclear fallout. And the, long, the longer it goes on. The right, the harder it becomes to disentangle, like who's in the right. Obviously, Ukraine is in the right. They were invaded by Russia. That's the proximate cause of this war. Now, of course, we can trace, you know, decisions that were made, including by the U.S. and et cetera, you know, that predate that, that might have yeah, that, that led to this situation arising. The more the more killing there is, the more destruction there is, the more the people who have suffered that destruction will say, well, you know, maybe the underlying policy was bad, or that, but now you destroyed my house, you destroyed my bridge, you killed people I know, so now I, I want to kill you for that reason. And like, the, so the, the longer it goes on, the more people, people have an a, a incentive to fight or a desire to fight. Um, having to do with how they've been harmed by the war itself, absolutely. and that, that's how few, that's how like blood feuds arrived historically between you know rival families and gangs and stuff. So, you know, like, well, they did it first, but before that, they did, it, and before that, they did it because there's enough they did it in wars over yeah. time. Are these actions leading us closer to a negotiated peace? Right. That's the that's question that everything exactly, and I, I'm afraid that's not not the discourse that's happening right now. Former President Donald Trump renewed calls for Ukraine-Russia peace talks at least during a rally in Arizona yesterday. Let's watch. We must demand the immediate negotiation of a peaceful end to the war in Ukraine, or we will end up in World War III, and there will be nothing left of our planet all because stupid people didn't have a clue. They didn't have a clue. They don't understand. They really don't understand. I rebuilt our military. I rebuilt our nuclear power. They don't understand what they're dealing with, the power of nuclear. Thank goodness he didn't say anything about the election or else maybe we wouldn't have been able to even play that <laughs> speech. But look, really, Robbie, what is the topsy-turvy world we live in where we have kind of Biden's response being about how this conflict is justifying more funds to Ukraine, more, you know, new Russian attacks justify increased funding. That's the, the linear trajectory of all of the discourse from the sitting administration. And for a conversation about peace settlements, we're turning to Donald, Donald Trump. Right. Someone who, recall all the mainstream media and progressive media writing about Donald Trump as he was becoming president about how this had raised the threat of nuclear destruction. I think the assumption being because he's such a careless and yes. reckless individual, unlike any of the kind of normal people we've had in present, normal people who have, you know, droned yes, people and started John tons Mulaney of wars. has a bit about how Trump is like being a, a, a horse in a hospital. Yeah. yeah unpredictable. Is... It's somewhere in the hospital. <laughs> and, and now look at the situation we're in. <laughs> a horse in a hospital. Yeah, it's a, it's a good bit. It's a funny it's one. It's a good bit. Um, right. So that, that was what all, all that was said about Trump. Now, look, we are... We are in a scenario where we are, I, I think it's undeniable. I, I don't think we're like close to nuclear war. I'm not trying to like scare people. It's just, it is more elevated at this moment yeah. than it was for, under the Trump presidency. And where is the, I'm not seeing a lot of mainstream fear mongering about how Biden is bringing us to the brink of nuclear annihilation, the way they were saying that about Trump. Absolutely it, not. It's, Absolutely that's kind of not. unfair. And, and that's why there's this broader credibility crisis, I think, you know, in the media, it's, it's not obviously, it's just the world's smallest praise, right? Oh, Donald Trump isn't leading us into nuclear right. war. But it does, I think, 
laying it out this way does, I think, help people realize what is motivating voters to go in one direction or the other when there is the, the superseding narrative for so many liberals is that Trump is the one that was presenting the most danger to the United States because danger is so narrowly defined. It's, it's not wrong, the criticisms that are obviously made, but we have to ha be more comprehensive, I think, in our critiques of, of members of both parties. Well, we're going to put our horse back in our hospital <laughs> and have more rising right after this. Stay tuned. Robbie, what is on your radar today? Well, Ben Sass is a Republican senator from Nebraska. He was first elected in 2014 and then reelected in 2020. He's a conservative who supports limited government and individual responsibility. He's actually the avatar of a kind of post-Tea Party conservatism that was popular in the GOP between the fall of Bush-era neoconservatives, but then prior to the rise of the Trumpian MAGA conservative in 2016. That's the timeline on that. So he is no fan, actually, of former President Donald Trump. When Trump ran for president in 2016, Sass was the first sitting Republican senator to say he would never support Trump. After Trump won the presidency, Sass said that he thought about leaving the GOP all the time and preferred to think of himself as an independent conservative who caucuses with the Republicans. For criticizing President Trump, the Nebraska GOP attempted to censor him. Sass's criticisms of Trump only increased after the January 6th riot. Here he is speaking directly to Republicans in his own state about what happened at the Capitol riots. January 6th is going to leave a scar. For 220 years, one of the most beautiful things about America has been our peaceful transfer of power. But what Americans saw three weeks ago was ugly. Shameful mob violence to disrupt a constitutionally mandated meeting of the Congress to affirm that peaceful transfer of power. It happened because the president lied to you. He lied about the election results for 60 days, despite losing 60 straight court challenges, many of them handed down by wonderful Trump-appointed judges. He lied by saying that the vice president could just violate his constitutional oath and declare a new winner. That wasn't true. He then riled a mob that attacked the Capitol, many chanting, hang Pence. If that president were a Democrat, we both know how you'd respond. But because he had Republican behind his name, you're defending him. Something has definitely changed over the last four years, but it's not me. Sass, by the way, is one of the seven Republicans who voted to convict Trump during the president's second impeachment trial. So my point in bringing all this up is to point out that Sass should be viewed by non-Republicans as something of a respectable conservative. He's principled. Unlike most people in his party, he broke with Trump over Trump's abhorrent behavior. Anti-Trump voices who claim they're not just against all Republicans, but against Trump specifically. They should view Sass in a positive light. He did the job. But of course, they do not. This has become evident in recent days because Sass just got a very interesting new job. He is expected to leave the Senate to become president of the University of Florida. Sass has an intellectual background. He graduated from Harvard with a degree in government and then earned a Master's of Arts from St. John's College and a Master of Philosophy from Yale. So it's obvious that someone of his caliber with a background in philosophy and governance might make a good contender for university president. Uh, yesterday, Sass spoke at forums at the university to answer questions from faculty and students, and here is how he was greeted.
Students did not technically interrupt the event, which was happening elsewhere, though they did attempt to chant loud enough to make it impossible for his event to go on. Their issue with Sass, as far as I could tell, is his social conservatism. He does oppose both abortion and gay marriage. Sass stated repeatedly that his views on those issues have absolutely nothing to do with university governance or how he would govern. And moreover, he considers gay marriage in particular an absolutely settled constitutional issue that he has no desire to revisit. So here's what he said. There are definitely federal policy issues where I've had disputes before about which decision courts should be making versus legislatures. But Obergefell, for example, is law of the land and nothing about Obergefell is changing in the United States. He also said, so your question is, do I support and affirm everybody in this community? Absolutely. And frankly, one of my jobs would be to make sure that we as a community work hard for everybody to feel included. And one piece of that is making sure we understand what metrics we have to make sure we're getting better at making people feel included. Sass even said he supports the students' free speech rights to protest. Obviously, I wish they didn't have the position they have, but I strongly support the right to protest and exercise their free speech rights, he said. I won't say I precisely welcome the protesters, but I sort of intellectually and constitutionally welcome the protesters. And look, I don't agree with Sass's gay marriage views either, but it seems fairly clear that his conservative views do not preclude him from being an effective manager of an institution of higher education. He has voiced his commitments to affirming all students repeatedly, working on behalf of all of them. Students and faculty should, I think, therefore give him a chance. So should anyone else who wants to demonstrate that their personal opposition to Trump is actually about Trump and his ideas rather than a generic hostility toward all people whose views out fall outside the progressive consensus, which is a lot of people. If you want a more normal Republican Party, save your protests for people who deserve them. So my basic point in bringing this up is that like Ben Sass is as normal a Republican you can get in the sort of traditional sense of the word normal. He said that his views are independent of how he would govern as president. He's not an election denier. He's done all, he did all the right things. He denounced Trump repeatedly. He's voted against Trump. So why can't he be university president? So Ben Sass's views don't fall, you know, they're not just outside of what progressives or, you know, leftists or whatever think, you know, as characterized here. 55% of Republicans support gay marriage. And I'm having a little bit of trouble with the idea that a school administrator's views have, or have no bearing on how policies are going to be administered on campus. Now, you can believe that a person should be allowed to have conservative views on abortion rights or gay marriage and be an administrator, a president of a campus. That's fine. But I don't think it's fair to characterize Ben Sass as kind of mainstream or normal when he's not even among Republicans on these kind of views. And certainly not among Republicans at the age of folks who are attending a university like this. And use the fact that he is better than Trump in some respects, not all respects, because Trump is very enthusiastic at this point about gay marriage. But the fact that he is better Better than Trump in some respects is not an excuse to say that people aren't, I think, well-founded in their criticisms of him. And I think, moreover, your point that I, I appreciate that you made, that they weren't actually obstructing him from speaking. This isn't a free speech issue. He wasn't canceled in any way. In fact, the protesters are the ones that are expressing their rights under the First Amendment to make their objections known. And so I'm having a little bit of trouble seeing what the there there is here. What's, what's the problem? Doesn't, hasn't everything played out as it's supposed to play out? And frankly, isn't this guy probably still going to end up being president of the university? Yeah, I'm saying they should give him a chance. If you want, if you want to confine your, um, 
if, if you if you fire wildly at like every Republican, then it just becomes no Republican is acceptable. I'm saying this isn't an acceptable Republican. His views on these issues, he said, I mean, he said, I, I, he offered their reassurances to people that his views on these issues have nothing to do with university governance. If you're saying then, like, the you can't be the president of a university if you don't support gay marriage, I think that's, like, not a tenable position. Well, like, no, but it's a, gay it's a position that people 100% are allowed to have. So, again, we got really well, to really be careful it, yeah. about what well, is, agrees they're allowed to what have is, what is, what is cancelable, what is authoritarian. A bunch of kids at a university saying they don't want a president who doesn't believe that they have a right to get married is not... I, you know, it's not a speech issue. It's not about. It, it is simply people doing exactly what they're supposed to do. Shine light on the fact that there's this enormous contrast between Republican leaders and Republicans in the world. Moreover, this idea that because he said he wouldn't do anything to imperil the 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 lives of gay kids on campus or LGBTQIA kids on campus, you know, because you said so. If Republicans want it there because I said so, claims to be taken seriously, they shouldn't have spent decades saying obviously abortion is settled law. We're not going to do anything. Roe v. Wade is settled law, and skirting what their substantive views are on that question, and then clap like seals when it's overturned, and then go forward and try to pass a a federal ban on abortion, like some Republicans are trying to do right now. So do you think in that context that students should be taking Ben Sass's word on an issue like this? I do take, I do think Republicans like Ben Sass have absolutely no appetite for turning back gay marriage. And would you have said the same thing about abortion? Maybe not no, I would not have said, he's, he's would not have said the same thing about abortion. He personally is an aggressively anti-abortion person. But generally speaking, is there an acknowledgement that Republicans have been saying using that exact same line on abortion and are now saying don't worry about gay marriage despite the fact that Clarence Thomas at least put, put uh, gay marriage squarely in his sights in the opinion? I think Republicans, have, maybe they've been a little sneaky about it at times, but have always wanted to curtail abortion rights. Um, I don't think there's any, there's very little political appetite to, at this point, curtail. Well, I, I certainly marriage. don't judge gay students for not wanting to uh, count on that as a wing and a prayer. And I think I respect their ability and willingness to put themselves out there and advocate for their beliefs as our Constitution uh, protects them in doing. Hmm. Well, we will have more Rising right after this. Stay with us. Former White House press secretary, now turned NBC News contributor Jen Psaki, dodged questions about Hunter Biden's looming troubles with federal investigators. The Washington Post reported last week that the feds confirmed they have enough evidence to charge the president's son. When asked about it on Sunday's Meet the Press, here's what she had to say. I looked at a bunch of local uh, front pages uh, this morning, and if you look at the front page in Nevada, they're talking about Trump's rally there and what it means for candidates and turning out the vote. If you look at the front pages in Pennsylvania, they're talking about Mastriano. Does he have a grassroots mm. campaign or movement going? And obviously, Georgia is quite focused on every latest development in Herschel Walker. So the truth is, as much as there was so much news happening in Washington this week, it doesn't always translate and often doesn't translate to what voters are talking about in states, and I think that's what we're seeing currently. Mm -hmm. Federal investigators have had their eye on Hunter Biden for his international business deals with Ukrainian natural gas company Burisma, among others, but the charges that could be brought against him involve tax crimes and firearm crimes. So I'm not, I'm not sure the point Jen Psaki made there 
made a lot of sense. I mean, just because the local papers in those places are more interested at this very moment in election news, including like the very salacious election news in Georgia, does that mean the people aren't interested in Hunter right. Biden? It, Is that what she was trying to suggest? I don't think that proves that. It, it's circular logic. It's saying, right. let's not talk about this because the people aren't interested in it, but how are the people going to be interested in it if you don't talk about right. it so they know exactly what's going on? And it does seem like there is an increasing appetite for this, even among kind of mainstream um, liberal outlets. There it's was only a, taken two years. It's only <laughs> taken two years. But the, there was an NBC story yesterday, you know, somebody wrote an op-ed saying the Trump family shadiness didn't mean Hunter Biden and his laptop deserved a pass. I mean, arguably, there's a there's an argument to be made that just completely conceding this, acknowledging it, saying that you know Democrats are acting um, you know ethically and not blocking this investigation, even though it's the president's own son, basically throw him under the bus a little, a little bit, let the charges fall where they are. That will shore up Joe Biden in the longer t- in the longer run as he continues to try to investigate Donald Trump or any number of things that are going on. You know, you have this looming FBI investigation. You have people being very critical of the role of the FBI, sometimes in good faith and sometimes in bad. And this, I think, is a potentially very thorny issue for Biden. And I don't think it's going away. Well, an investigation that settles on some kind of minor tax mm-hmm. issue and a firearm, firearm issue. Charge, yeah. I'm sorry, that's nothing. Like, mm-hmm. that's not... We don't care about that. Mm-hmm. We want to know if he was influence peddling. We want to know who he told about his uh, ability to lobby the big guy. Mm. Remember the big guy? Mm. That's what we care about. It doesn't, like, whatever. If, they, if investigators look at you for long enough, they can find something, if you have any amount of money, they can find sure. something in your taxes to prompt further investigation. Then they can charge you with obstruction of justice when you don't, you know, give them all the answers they want Wait, immediately. So are you agreeing with Saki here that you think there's a nothing burger? Or do you think it's, no, 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 it's I, only if it's limited to the firearm charge? Yeah, I'm saying if this is all this is, it is a nothing burger. But because I think there is more to it, it's not, not a conspiracy. But it's if they, if they focus on this and this is all it is, the investigators are not doing their job. They're not looking hard enough. But what if, I mean, it does, look... I mean, we, we're suspicious of the investigators for good reason, because they slow rolled. We now know that whistleblowers have said they slow rolled this story at the same time that it was being suppressed in, on social media platforms and in the, by the mainstream media, which took forever to concede that it even was a story. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of bad faith on the, the part of the people, the gatekeepers of information here, have shown themselves to be really untrustworthy on this issue. So I'm having a hard time just accepting that, yeah, what we have is a minor tax issue. So you think the implication here is that they are basically throwing out these more minor charges as bait to yeah. say, you know, to validate the idea that yeah. there really isn't that much. You're right. Here. We got him. Here he is. It was a tax issue. Mm. Yeah, that's that would be the best case scenario for. Well, I mean, the best case scenario was just keeping a lid on this story uh, forever, which they did try. I mean, they being a not a cabal, but just a group of different people acting for various reasons. But now that's impossible. So this would be the next best outcome. Yeah, yeah, he's. Guilty yeah, of some but this is this is what's so hard errors. about the declining trust in our institutions. Sitting here saying that it's almost impossible to know whether or not this is truly the extent of what Hunter Biden could be char- charged with, and therefore it is a nothing burger, or that this is conspiracy, conspiratorial other aspect of it where there's more, but Biden is working behind the strings, uh, behind the scenes rather, to pull strings and protect his son. And the the, the possibility of the more um, you know paranoid option is always looming out there if you don't have a fundamental respect in the institutions. Well, 
Right, but the, insti- the institutions like are not. I mean, but the institutions, like when they're not, when they're not worthy of our respect, and I don't know that. I don't know that I think that Joe Biden is necessarily pulling strings to get Hunter off the hook or something, or or is shielding him in any way beyond like providing emotional support. I mean, we hear those those phone calls, which are kind of heart wrenching. Yeah, he's a good dad. Um, the issue is, I don't try the investigators themselves, the institutions. Like it goes back to the institutions, like. The FBI will seems inclined to do things or to, to, to shield, to not look as closely at a Hunter Biden mm-hmm. and look very clo- closely to, does Trump have any documents that are unclassified? Like, let's commit more resources to that investigation. Those kinds of subtle biases that I think it's fa- it have reached a tipping point where na- national law enforcement investigators, intelligence appara- apparatuses, they are, they're so pathologically, they're very anti-Trump. And I don't trust their judgment on these matters, Look, even I, without I, being I explicitly that. directed by Joe Biden to do anything. I hear that, fact. and I understand why. But also, isn't it possible that Donald Trump, the former president of the United States, deserves more resources than a president's son? Is it, is it possible that mm-hmm. Donald Trump did more wrongdoing and had, that had more national security implications than Hunter Biden? I think it is also that is also possible. And it is very difficult to read inferences into the tiny pieces of the investigatory pie that we're being exposed to right now. And I'm not, I'm not arguing yeah. one way or the other here. I'm just saying that it, I, I can feel the dangerous pull of what it li- is like to live in this limbo where the fundamental skepticism about what is going on in government leads people to jump to the worst conclusion no matter what. And on some level, Saki is accidentally right here, that no matter what anybody says in the media about any of this, a lot of folks have made up their mind because they, they feel like all they can trust is their gut or all they can trust is the political figure that they resonate with, whether that's I mean, Donald Trump or Joe Biden or someone in between. It's the statement that 50 or however many it was former top FBI and law enforcement officials saying jointly their gut reaction to the Hunter Biden laptop story is don't pay any attention to this. This is fake and was right. planted by Russia. That's a pretty damn strong indicator that we cannot necessarily trust the people in this community to handle this thing correctly. That is that that would be the one that would mm. be the thing I would point to yeah. as most um, uh, eyebrow raising. But does that for me. necessarily mean? No, it doesn't necessarily more mean. I mean, you're right. We're just firearms. We're just civilians. We're just trying to make what we can of this. But uh, there have been a lot of screw ups. On this issue, well, with a lot of for, for a lot of in, in, a lot of institutional screw up, a lot of individual screw up. Let me ask you this: Would you expect there to be? I mean, obviously, we've had a lot of high profile leaks over the past ten years or so. Mm-hmm. So much of what we know about that has has caused much of the left and and right to be distrustful of government with these NSA leaks and the like came from the inside. Do you think at a certain point, if there really were significant dirt about Hunter Biden, there would be an expectation? that there are enough people of ide- ideological diversity within the government that we'd find out about it. How, how likely is it that there's a real red herring that's been simmering for years now that we still don't know about? Well, but there have been leaks. I mean, there, a whistleblower came forward. Um, we talked about it on the show a couple weeks ago, I think came to Senator Ron Johnson or someone with information about how the FBI had decided not to investigate the Hunter Biden or to really take its time on that. Um, the, the answer to your question... No, 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 not about the, the level of the investigation, but whether or not something yeah. has been found and covered up. Because isn't, isn't that the implication here, that they're charging him with the lower 
crimes to avoid the yeah. the optics of well, you know a bigger a bigger I, brouhaha. Yeah. Well, I was I would say to that. I mean, the laptop information has been available for years, and it took a very 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 long time for the mainstream media to even take an appreciation. It, like this stuff takes longer. From on the Hunter Biden front, because so many of the reporters are are way more interested in Trump stuff, mm -hmm. so that would be a possible explanation for that. I take your point, but yeah. like it took them this long to even acknowledge that the laptop was real. So yeah. maybe another five years from now they'll say we have the smoking gun for all the influence peddling Hunter was doing. Honestly, sure. I mean, it, it could be. I get it. All right, more rising after this. Stay with us. Hip-hop artist and fashion mogul Ye, formerly known as Kanye West, made more headlines following his interview with Fox News' Tucker Carlson last week. During his sit-down with the conservative host, Ye argued that politicians, Democrat and Republican, only see black people as poll numbers. Here's a snippet. Politicians, all black people are worth as, approval, as an approval rating. The Democrats feel that they don't owe us anything and Republicans feel that they don't owe us anything. Blacks have never demanded something for our vote. And that's something I talked to Ice Cube about. What are we asking for? How do we change our life? If all of our organizations and all of our colleges and even our title as black was made by white people, all of our, org all, you know, all of our jobs and Black Wall Street um, Harlem after gentrification, there's never been a fully black-owned community where we we have all the municipalities, things that uh, Dr. Claude Anderson, Anderson talks about. We need that. Here to discuss Ye's comments is host of the Straight Shot No Chaser podcast, Teslin Figaro. Teslin, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me. Our pleasure. So what did you think of Kanye's remarks um, about uh, the black voters and whether they've you know, gotten what they wanted or even asked for anything? Yeah, typically, and I know Bree follows my work, I am usually about the message and not the messenger. But in this case, Kanye's comments are in bad faith. Uh, he is not the best messenger for this particular message. In fact, uh, it is acting more like a mascot, and I reject that. It is message over mascot. And the reason I'm saying this is because many of us have been demanding more uh, for the black vote by Democrats and Republicans. We Again, we demand more from Democrats and Republicans. But while we were pushing that message, Kanye was running around saying slavery was a choice. So I cannot conflate my thoughts with Kanye's, no matter how bad I want someone on a major platform to demand more for black voters. We have to be very careful in this case and make sure uh, that we are not using mascotism. That's a new word that I just came up with. Mascotism uh, and make sure that we are spreading uh, the message and doing it the right way. Uh, one minute, uh, Kanye is rocking a White Lives Matter shirt, which is the uh, anti-Black Lives Matter and then uh, the next minute he's talking about respecting black voters. He has to make a choice. One minute it's not about race, and then the next minute he's calling upon the black community to support him and his black children. I will not allow black American voters to be used by Kanye no more than I want to allow black American voters to be used by Democrats, to be disrespected by Republicans, and to be unheard by progressives. This is a very serious subject, and I would love to talk about it more once Kanye 
is out the mix. Yeah, it's, it's a difficult position because when he started kind of playing footsie with these these sorts of ideas and being critical of the Democratic Party back in 2016. It wasn't just him, right? There, there were a lot of people. I remember Chance the Rapper came out and made some supportive statements of him uh, saying that, you know, Democrats, uh, black people rather, don't have to be Democrats. And I remember back then, I think in 2018, writing a supportive article for Chance the Rapper in Rolling Stone magazine, because I think that there is a real there there. There's a really um, important argument to be made about what happens to black voters if their votes are assumed to be devoted to the Democratic Party. You don't see the same kind of courtship that can sometimes happen with voters like Latino voters who are more divided, less less partisanly, you know, segue, um, sectioned off in the way that black voters are. You see people actually bidding for their attention and offering things substantively from a policy perspective, whereas black voters are told, like Joe Biden did uh, during the election season this past, uh, two, you know, two years ago, that if you don't vote for me, you're just summarily not black. So it is useful to want to have that conversation. And as you pointed out, Ice Cube was a part of that conversation. There were other hip hop artists and others who were frustrated with the with the assumption that black voters were going to fall in line without being given anything in return. And those people were vilified. Um, and, and it was argued that they were, at that time, mascots, if you will, for the Republican Party and Republican interests. And and Kanye doing this after the years that he's had of, you know, wearing the MAGA hats and frankly not making much in the way of demands from the Republican Party has, I think, given credibility to those attacks. But separate and apart yeah, from no, Kanye. Hold on, Brie. Hold on, Brie. One second. Hold yeah. on. Because Ice Cube was not looked at as a mascot. I want to kind of back up on what I mean when I say mascot. But unfortunately, Tesla, I'm I think that he was. But, I don't think it was fair, but yeah, he let me, was definitely let me, vilified. Let me finish. Let me finish my point. I've been vilified as well. I'm talking about among black voters. I'm talking about among black Americans. Ice Cube has always been respect, uh, respected by the black community. So let's let me be clear in what I'm saying. Yes, we've been vilified. I have talked about we need more for black voters. I've been going on, on Fox News for six years saying that it's in my pinned tweet. What I'm talking about now is Kanye is not the right messenger. Ice Cube has always had respect uh, from black America because he has consistently talked about black America. He has consistently talked about the importance of black people getting respected from the 90s until now. So Kanye cannot one minute be all about black voters and then the next minute saying slavery was a choice. So yes, it's a great argument, but he is not the messenger, Brie. Black Americans who are fighting this on the ground, wanting more for our vote, we won't allow our message to be conflated with someone else because right now uh, we are the best topic for right now. And next week is White Lives Matter. Next week is slavery is not a choice. He's not the right messenger. So yes, it is a good topic to have. But again, we are looking for consistency. We're not looking for mascots. Yes, we were vilified for saying you're helping Republicans. Yes, Ice Cube was talked about for saying he was helping Donald Trump. But Ice Cube is no Kanye. And but, so but Kanye Tesla, has to make a decision on what side what side is he going to be on? The Tesla, side of black voters? That's, that's or the just argument I'm making. But, but it definitely is true that, that Ice Cube was vilified by a lot of black Americans. Roland Martin yes. came out and, criti and criticized um, him. Yes. A lot of the Democratic establishment black people, because of the threat that I think a respected black person like Ice Cube coming forward and making those statements. Right, because but of the Ice threat Cube's that he presented. not Kanye. That's the point I'm making. Ice Cube's not Kanye. Vilified versus being a mascot. When I say a mascot, I'm saying uh, Kanye picks and chooses when he wants to align with black people. No, I, you can't I hear say you. White lives, you can't say white lives matter yeah. last week. And, and dismiss the protest. And again, this is not a defense for Black Lives Matter, the organization, but you cannot say White Lives Matter 
uh, last week to intentionally insult those of us that are putting our lives on the front line, not on TV, but intentionally insult those who are putting our life on the line and then double back and say, well, what about black voters? That's what I mean when I say a mascot. No, I understand what you mean. Being vilified is totally different. I I understand what you mean. And I substantively substantively agree with the differences there. But here's what I also think is important, Teslin. There will be black gatekeepers who will come for people and use the exact same criticisms they use for Kanye West for people like um, uh, Ice Cube. And so I completely agree with you that they're substantively different. But at the end of the day, there were people that were using the same language about Ice Cube, saying that you're just caping for the Republican Party, you're just doing this for click. All of all of those arguments were made. So that's why I do think it's important that even if it is Kanye who is bringing this stuff up to try to disaggregate what is a useful, truthful crit- critique out of what he's saying, at the same time as you're doing, you criticize the no, inconsistency the that Kanye has been making this argument with. Yeah, go ahead. This can't, normally when I even talk to conservatives who bring up good points, I am very good with, as you know, Brie, you followed my work for seven years now. There are times when I can pull out the, what they say, the meat from the bone. In this particular case, this man, it hasn't even been seven days since he said white lives matter and got a shirt about white lives matter. This is not one of those instances that we can just pull it out and meet from the bone. And let's just separate the message from the messenger because Kanye is literally literally disrespecting black Americans. So this is just not their case. Sometimes it is where we can say, let's look at the message. Let's not look at the person. Ice Cube still has respect on the grassroots level, still has respect in the streets. So let's not confuse the messenger. I'm not talking about vilified by the establishment, vilified by the gatekeepers. I'm vilified by the gatekeepers and the establishment. What I'm saying is Kanye cannot pick and choose when he wants to carry the black torch. We reject that. We reject that. That is not, it doesn't work that way. You don't get to just be our friend whenever it works for you. That is mascotting. It is a big difference. And I can't conflate that because conservatives that are saying, yeah, 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 but let's look at the meat. Let's take the meat from the bone. They are desperate to have somebody with a major platform go against Democrats. And although they are desperate to have that, Kanye is not that person. They need to go find somebody else that they want to uplift to bring that message. But it is not Kanye in this particular incident because it hasn't even been a week since he pooped on those of us that are fighting for black lives. And I'm not talking about Black Lives Matter, the organization, but those of us that are putting our life on the line, he pooped on that. So Kanye should be quiet in this instance. And he also said pretty gross things about Jewish people. Look, I think he's just kind of a kook and conservatives are desperate to elevate any celebrity who starts saying things that are vaguely, some vaguely right things, they go, right wing things. They go, oh, look, a conservative celebrity. Yay, let's fawn all over him. But I, well, Robbie, it's just you, kind of a kook. What, I, don't, what like, do you make, I don't get it. What do you make of the fact that people like Candace Owens, you know, mm-hmm. around the, the Black Lives Matter, White Lives Matter, rather, T-shirts, put out videos saying, you know, very laudatory things of Kanye saying, of course, he makes a lot of sense. People are going to try to dismiss him, but he's great. And they built him up in this way. And there's this kind of one-two punch where days later, Kanye is tweeting these anti-Semitic statements. Do you think, do you expect any retraction there? Because I haven't really seen it so far from conservatives. 
Um, no, uh, probably not. Though I, I, I don't know. I, I haven't seen. No, I haven't seen anyone. Well, I've seen some people obviously criticizing him for that. Um, Megan McCain, although she's not a new yeah. right conservative figure, yeah. but she's a definitely conservative. She went. She was going hard on him mm-hmm. for this, and and I, I agree with her, bashing Republicans for exactly what I'm just saying, being willing to celebrate every single. You know, saying on one hand we don't want to be ruled by you know Hollywood and like what is it? Well, why do why do you know celebrities and Actors, why do we thing? care about yeah. they, they don't have smart policy opinions yeah. and then when they hear a policy opinion from one of them that they vaguely like they go oh that's our person we mm-hmm. love them mm-hmm. it's very very silly and, and Brie, can i can i say this because i want to be clear kanye has been reached out to on the back end he's been reached out to on the back end to explain how uh, uh disrespectful the White Lives Matter shirt was. It's not saying that, yes, people's life don't matter. We know everybody's life matter. But black people's life have not mattered in this country for 400 plus years. He has been reached out to on the back end, explaining the disrespect. And he came out and he doubled down and he tripled down. So he will not know. We, this is not one of those instances that we can just say, yeah, but let's just look at what he's talking about. Let's take the meat from the bone. No, not this time. The meat is off the bone. It's over with. Kanye's on his own in regards to how he has disrespected black Americans. He will not, I repeat, will not use us, black Americans, black American voters, to carry his damn water. He needs to figure out how to make himself right with his community. We will not be used when he wants us to go after Kim Kardashian and his black children. Mm. We will not be used when he says slavery was a choice. We will not be used when he's going up there hugging on Trump saying that's his daddy and he feel good about wearing the red hat. Kanye is not the messenger. We reject it. We reject it loud and clear. And he will not put us in a, a big a big mess with the Jewish community because now he has declared DEFCON 3. No, no, no. He's on his own. He's going to have to fight them and figure it out on his own. Fight Kim on your own. Do all the rest of that, brother. And when you get some act right, in the words of Jeezy and Yo Gotti, when you get some act right, then come back to the table, to the black community, and then we'll move forward. Thank you, Teslin. It's always a pleasure. Thank you. (laughs) We'll have more Rising Review right after this. President Biden told his audience at a fundraiser on Thursday that Putin was not joking when threatening the use of nuclear weapons in Ukraine, and that suggested that the world is facing, quote, the prospect of Armageddon for the first time since the Cuban Missile Crisis. Military expert at Defense Priorities, retired Lieutenant Colonel Daniel Davis, says Biden knows that a nuclear war over Ukraine is possible and asks, will the president change course? The lieutenant colonel is here with us to weigh in. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Glad to be back. Yeah, great to have you as always. And we discussed this earlier in our show, uh, how interesting it is to hear remarks from uh, former President Trump recently talking about the desperate need to have peace negotiations between Ukraine and Russia. Meanwhile, uh, Joe Biden is has said repeatedly, you know, we're as committed to this thing as long as it takes, as long as it takes, um, even though, and I, I think you've said this on our show as well, it, it's inarguable that the risk of nuclear war is is now is now greater than it has been maybe perhaps any time in the last I don't know last decade last two decades oh much more than that I mean I, this is one thing I certainly do agree with uh, President Biden on when he said this is the biggest threat of nuclear catastrophe since 1962 and he's absolutely right it's never been higher than what it is right now because you have both sides openly talking about it you have uh, Putin and many of his acolytes 
uh, openly saying that if this, you know, if our country is threatened, if our existential threat, if we feel like there's one, we'll use nuclear weapons. There's no question about that. And yet we we acknowledge that tacitly. But then we continue on with these actions that feed into Putin's fear. And there is no good thing for us on that. Uh, our continued going down that path doesn't make us safer. It doesn't make Putin any less likely to use it. In fact, it has the opposite effect. And I'm telling you, we have to change course somehow for our own national security interests. Right. Like, let's play this out. Is the belief that Ukraine with all of the funding and support of the West and the world, is going to militarily overcome Russia. Is that is that in fact the argument? That is the argument. <laughs> That's what a lot of people think. But but look, you got to look at what's happening on the ground. Ukraine just spent uh, the better part of the last uh, six or eight weeks having these two relatively successful, actually very successful in the north offensives. But they have now played out. They have gone as far as they can go, and the Russia has now reaffirmed and stiffened. But Russia now has up to 300,000 more ground troops coming in. And as we've seen over the last 48 hours, missiles are continuing to rain in from Moscow, devastating the energy infrastructure throughout Ukraine, which is necessary for them to continue even fighting and moving troops around, etc. So the, the, the dynamic is going to continue to be going against Ukraine and improving Russia's strength, and that's yeah. just going to raise the stakes for everybody. So, how does so how does Putin approach this? Because there's a there's a difference, right, between Vladimir Putin being in some existential danger, or maybe there isn't. I guess like your opinion on this between Vladimir Putin as the you know chief administrator of the Russian state being in some kind of jeopardy because the war is unpopular. Maybe his you know his the people he's surrounded with don't like him. You know, long history in the Soviet Union of you know leaders getting it when they when things are not going well. And Russia itself being threatened. And, and the, the question are those different things and is you know is could Putin do something you know, reckless and world-changing because he feel not necessarily because of the position Russia is in, but that he himself is in personally. Well, you know, when you have an autocratic leader like Putin, uh, it's it's almost impossible to disentangle whether the his personal security or the nation's security uh, are separate. I, I think that they're one and the same, especially when he is the sole decider on nuclear weapons. There is no committee or anything else like that, like there is in some places, he alone has the, the decision and the launch authority for nuclear weapons. So if he feels like he's being threatened, whether, and I think I may have put this in that 1945 article to which you're referring, if Putin feels like that he's at risk of a 1917 style uh, 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 revolution to where he could suffer a palace coup or any kind of thing like that, he could be then feel like he has to use the weapons. And of course, in his mind, it would be very easy to say, oh, well, this is for the national security of our country. You know, we have to stop these attacks before they come. So that's entirely possible. And, and of course, we don't know how that dynamic is playing out inside. All we do know is that the risk to us, if that does, is, is, is in bigger than anything we can imagine. Yeah, the gamble does seem to be a lose-lose scenario. Either Russia succeeds militarily without bombs, in which case 
we're back where we started. Ukraine succeeds in re regaining all um, claimed territory and pushing Russia completely out. Russia loses militarily and then feels kind of provoked into a nuclear response. And at that point, we're basically hoping that Russia doesn't feel as though, you know, that, that Russia has the wherewithal or whatever motives to just say, okay, we lost this one, guys, never mind. And is that the kind of gamble that we're wanting to take on Putin's, you know, um, you know re re respect for populations or, you know, his, his apathy, you know, his lack of appetite for, you know, mass destruction to not launch a nuclear bomb. That, that does feel to be like the, the line we're walking up to and the presumption that we're making, that Ukraine can win the war and then that it will just be over at that point if the war is won on the ground. It, it does appear just from, from what people are saying and what we're doing, that that is the presumption. And, and as I've said multiple times, and I believe even on your show here, is that in my view, there is zero chance, not even unlikely, but zero chance that Putin would allow his forces uh, over any period of time to be physically driven out of all this territory, which he now can, believes is Russian territory, and him not escalate up to nuclear weapons. There's just no chance in my mind that he would do that. So I think that by continuing to have that as an objective on our side is to say that let's just push even closer to the nuclear threshold, which is absurd for our security. I mean, if you think about the history of Europe, it's a history of long, sometimes hundred year struggles being fought over, you know, small pieces of land that one side, both sides claim, and they don't, like, they take forever to resolve, and they don't resolve, then they go, then they go back, they fight over it again, and again, and again. And part of the, I guess, the triumph, right, of the modern era is getting out of that mentality where you have, you know, nation states squabbling over territory, um, unending with just constant violence. Now it looks like Ukraine and Russia might be back in that dynamic where they are, you know, Russia will gain and then Ukraine will gain. And they're, you know, they're basically squabbling over not the entirety of Ukraine, but over that um, eastern portion. How do we, what can be done to, you know, to stop this from being like a conflict that just stretches on for years and years and years? And it's, you know, it's just barren, like destroyed land, like, like in the trench warfare yep. or something of World War One. You know, I, I, I was emphatic in the months leading up to this war that we had to avoid this very conflicting dynamic that you just described there by having di diplomacy and negotiating the settlement and, and everybody agreeing you can't get everything you want, no maximalist desires on any side, but both sides have to get something or they're gonna get, we're going to end up in war. That now has happened. So now we can't go back to that other one. Now then the question is, what do we do now? And this is a critical question here. Should the United States risk uh, the national security of our country, of all of NATO, over potentially getting dragged into a nuclear war over the eastern part of Ukraine? You said that very well right there. This is stuff that's been going on for, you know, decades and in some cases centuries in different capacities on the same ground. And this is a squabble between Moscow and Kiev. And it's an existential and huge fight for them and very important to both, but not to us. And the, the idea that we could potentially lose American citizens, American troops or American cities over something in the Donbass is just absurd on the face of it. And we definitely need to change policies. Mm. Well, thank you so much for that. We always appreciate your commentary, Lieutenant Colonel. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. We'll have more rising for you right after this. A 
tweet from Florida Surgeon General Dr. Joseph Latipo about COVID-19 mRNA vaccines was reportedly taken down and then later reinstated. So the Friday tweet linked to guidance on the Florida Department of Health website, which officially recommends against vaccination for young men after analysis done by that same Florida Health Department found an 84% increase in the relative incidence of cardiac-related deaths among males 18 to 39 years old within 20 days following mRNA vaccination. Again, that was conducted by the Florida Department of Health. That's just their analysis. Yeah, the tweet was reportedly taken down on Saturday for violating Twitter's policies and then restored later that morning. Latipo responded to the situation on Fox News. Let's take a look. There's been so much confusion, as you know, over the past few years that people have trouble sometimes even identifying when something has so clearly crossed the line. Yeah, so some of the critique here has been that it's not a, you know, controlled scientific study it was an analysis that was done on you know democrat you know data collected within state some people have pointed to the fact that data from other states where there is are higher vaccination rates haven't shown the same spike in um you know health risks for that age group and so at very least more research needs to be done and the concern is obviously that prematurely putting out information that might discourage people from getting vaccinated could put them at more risk especially as we are looking toward the winter and a more harmful wave being anticipated if they don't go ahead and protect themselves with the tools that we have available. Yeah, look, I th that's a pretty significant increase that this analysis found. It would surprise me if that finding stood up to further analysis. Um, how I, I, I don't particularly think um, the vaccines are nearly that dangerous, even for that age group. All that said, I, I can't see much justification in taking down discussion of that. It, it is a scientific analysis done by scientific yeah. people. It might be wrong. I mean, do we really know? We don't, we do, like, we don't, we don't know for certain that it's wrong. Yeah, I, I think would, it I, might. I'm <laughs> curious to see scientists engaging with it. I mean, right. I, I want to know, look, because I'm not interested in pretending that it's not true if it is. And I, and I think that's part of the issue that's been going on here is that a failure to trust the public with information has led people to withhold information from the public that later leads into public distrust so that there's now no sources that anybody will find to be credible. Well, and Twitter is exactly doing this. So they took this yeah. down and then they're like, eh, actually, okay, we're putting it back up. They're just making, they're eroding, I mean, the, the platforms have eroded trust in the, for, for good reason. Like, who thinks that the people who make content moderation decisions at Twitter and Facebook have any idea more than the rest of us what should be allowed to yeah. be up or not? Uh, I, I think Twitter has, in some ways, done a better job than Facebook handling some of these subjects, but this is a, a great one to the contrary. So they took it down, and then, and then they said... We shouldn't have done that. They put it back up. It's just, and also, like, at this point, holding back information like this from people has a very what-are-you-hiding kind of quality to it. Mm -hmm. um, if, if, you, if you don't trust people at some, I mean, if we've been through everything, like, how many times do gatekeeper-type people have to learn the lesson that when you try to vigorously suppress information, there are a lot, some people just get more suspicious or they get more determined to find that information. Yes. And look, this is the, you know, D Florida uh, Department of Public Health. I mean, this is this is as mainstream as it gets. 
they can post whatever they want on their state websites. I mean, this is, this isn't exactly one of those instances where you can kind of deplatform someone and they go away anyway, even if that were your goal. Right. And you know, I got to say, in my own experience of covering COVID on my own shows, I'll have someone on like Vinay Prasad, people will get very mad. I'll have someone else on that's recommended from the quote unquote other side of things. I had you and Walker Bagman together in one episode, but most frequently the people who know the most on opposite sides of the issue almost never agreed to be on the show at the same time and talk to each other about it. And that would be the quickest way to find out what is actually true because otherwise you're relying on the, the host to, you know, do a secondhand version of the arguments that the other side would be making and, and still manning it to the best of their ability, which is never going to be well, as good. And leaving stuff on Twitter, I got to say, being able to at least engage with it in this public discourse is the closest a lot of folks are going to get to be able to engage directly. And you can find pretty persuasive arguments from extremely knowledgeable people, on the people who are no, more knowledgeable than you and I, yeah. who have radically opposite views on this subject. Yes. And it's, That's why it's so confusing. It's, uh, and, and we have to recall that uh, vaccine recommendations and guidance, are. there are other countries in our kind of peer groups who are not recommending vaccines for young people anymore. Uh, most, and mostly this is not because they're finding some very serious harm, but because they're finding so little benefit right. that it doesn't really make sense. Right. And, and so, again, respected scientists, again, if you're, if you're a liberal, like respected liberal, not conservative, not like Ron DeSantis or something, but liberal scientific health authorities in other countries have reached somewhat significantly different conclusions about what to recommend, what policies to have. And it is not, it is not anti-science. It is not like wanting people to die. It's not like Florida's yeah. experiment in human sacrifice to, to draw, make somewhat different distinctions or to look at the data and have somewhat different conclusions. Yeah. It's worth noting again that this isn't a clinical trial. Uh, yeah. It's a relatively small sample size. I think people were saying online that it was uh, 20 deaths in question. Uh, Joseph Ladapo uh, did a follow-up tweet where he said there's 77 deaths in question, which is larger, but still a relatively small sample size. And look, I think I, I did a quick perusal through the quote tweets and responses to see what the counter arguments are. I, I want to see more of that. Like, yeah. if, if there's a problem here, I really encourage people not to say you're just a dumb shill who hates science. Yeah. Because none of us learn from that. If you have an argument to make, please make the argument and you know, vet this mm -hmm. in, the, in the court of public opinion. Actually, that was one of here. the most helpful things when, um, I, I can't recall her name, uh, was making the claims about, um, I mean, I know her name, I'm just blanking on it right now, <laughs> but uh, it was making the claims about how vaccines were causing miscarriages. Mm -hmm. um, Naomi? Wolf? Wolf, yes, that's it. I get Naomi Wolf and Naomi Klein confused. Yeah, is... Naomi Klein doesn't love that. No, I, I'm sure she doesn't. <laughs> Naomi Wolf was making that, and Naomi Watts. We'll get her in there. Um, <laughs> Naomi Wolf was making that claim, and then, and then actually what was helpful was that people were quote tweeting that and saying actually this analysis is wrong, including people who are otherwise very skeptical of vaccines, mm -hmm. which carries a lot of weight. Mm -hmm. When Alex Berenson says, Love Naomi Wolf, but she mm -hmm. did not read this correctly. Mm -hmm. That means something. Yeah. So that's a good argument for leaving this stuff on Twitter and yeah. not taking, not having the ban hammer. I think I agree. Hmm. Yeah. Well, we'll have more rising for you after this. MSNBC's Nicole Wallace unleashed a diatribe against quote election denying Republicans on air yesterday. Let's watch. 
They are running to sow discord in America, and it will change everything. We will wake up the morning after Election Day. We might not even call it that anymore in two years. We might not call it Election Day. We might call it Election Week. Because what we are watching, and because it's so slow, it's so slow, we don't cover it as a five-alarm fire, but it is. We are watching Republicans not just destroying democracy in the dark, breaking into election officers and plugging stuff in. We're watching them do it from rally stages. Do you think it requires, you know, a democracy commission? Should, should, should President Obama ask Chris Christie and Ben Ginsburg to sort of man a democracy hotline the way, you know, people used to man other crises? I mean, what should we do? Nicole Wallace isn't the only MSNBC host with a message for Republicans. Civilians, hey, freaks, fascist freaks on the right, there is no moral ambiguity here. There, there, there is no comparison between Russia and Ukraine. And, and you prove yourself to be the fascist that you are when you suggest the same. I... Uh... <laughs> How about this democracy hot like 1-800-D-E-M-O-C-R-C-R-A-C-Y? I can't spell it. So Never spell Y, Robbie. <laughs> and no, it's like a, when your powers combine, Captain Democracy appears I, like, on MSNBC, I guess. I have, I have no interest in pretending that there are not some really inappropriate behaviors on the right. You know, there is audio of Trump calling the Georgia Secretary of State and trying to get him to overturn the election. Like, like we know that that happened. And I don't want anything that I'm about to say to try to minimize the reality of those kinds of very explicit moments of election interfering. That's not hyperbole. That's like literally what happened. Okay. However, I do think that some of these figures, and I would note that both of the people talking there are Republicans. They're the beloved Republicans mm -hmm. of MSNBC. It's Nicole Wallace, George Bush's comms woman, and Joe Scarborough, you know, a congressional Republican, um, formerly, who are apparently the key advice givers to Democrats about what they should, should be aware of and what they're warning about. And frankly, what it sounds to me is that they are warning about their own, like, their, that, that advice they should be giving to their, their own party, to be honest. And Democrats should be doing some better introspection than that about why it is that nobody trusts them. And nobody believes that they, even as there are these clear evidence, this clear evidence that Republicans have had this attack on democracy, why people aren't so invested in the idea of Democrats being the ones that can actually protect it and make people's lives better. <laughs> Ukraine good, Russia bad, Trump Nazi media good. Yeah, that, that's basically... I'm not afraid to say it. <laughs> I'm not afraid. Robbie, like, that, that, that is, it, it is absurd. It is, and, and again, it's not that I have any interest in saying Putin isn't culpable for an invasion or taking this, but this complete and total flattening of, yeah. as, of an explanation of what's going on in the world. No, matter, no wonder people are turning off this news station. <sighs> when this news station's view is that this situation calls for a democracy commission, What? We don't. Do we ever need a commission? Is the commission ever the answer to any problem? I mean, what are they talking about? Look, yeah, Republicans want to win. They want power. They're willing to do almost anything it takes. 
That's also kind of true of Democrats. It's yes. not exactly the same, but look they at these stories also... out of California. Part, part of the story about the, the racist uh, city council members is that they were doing it. Part part of their discourse that wasn't like the racist bit was how they were going to elbow out progressive Nithya Raymond out, out of office. Right. Like it's it's all we've done story after story about how Democrats will align against the populist parts of their own party that frankly I think have the potential for much broader appeal and put more money and energy, corporate money and dark money, to defeat them in primary than they ever spend defeating Republicans. And frankly, they're paying Republicans. <laughs> they're funding right-wing right Republicans. Abs 100%. And we saw that so that's, many that's times. Strategy. Yes, yeah. So who is the enemy here? How, at a certain point, how mad can you be at the public for being confused about who they're going to trust? We're watching Republicans on MSNBC give the Democratic right. Party advice about how to basically ignore voters' concerns because everything is just about tribalism. Right. And that people can't be spoken to, people can't be persuaded, people can't be convinced. Don't even, don't bother asking the public what their interests are, what is motivating um, them or, in voting. No, Nicole Wallace already knows. Joe Scarborough already knows. And they're going right. to tell Those you. people were run out of the Republican Party. And not actually, right. those two people were not run out of the Republican Party for like, bold, like in the way that Ben Sass is being run out mm -hmm. or Romney because they actually, because they said Bad no to Trump. Yeah. These people were run out of the Republican Party because they had pro-war neoconservative yeah. views that Republican voters never really liked and yeah. finally, ultimately rejected decisively. Yeah. So now they're hawking those views to the Democratic Party and to mainstream media audiences. Yeah. What, what is frustrating? I mean, obviously, we talked in other segments about the Kanye story, and we spoke with, um, you know, Teslin Figaro about how there have been other more credible figures than Kanye who are black American, you know, famous people who have called out the Democratic Party as not doing much in the way of actually helping blacks and other historically marginalized groups, poor people, generally speaking. And I think the, the problem has always been no one really knows where to go next in terms of an off-ramp because most people also acknowledge and understand that a corporatized Republican Party is also not serving the interests of poor and working class people. And there is an excitement about things like the forward party and Andrew Yang. People are desperate for some way out. But the reality is that we're in this lockstep. So we do get into this place where you can't criticize Democrats without being told you're a Republican toady. You can't uh, criticize Republicans without being accused of loving uh, Joe Biden. Half the comments of this show are very confused and they think that I'm in some deep love affair with Joe Biden as though, well, meanwhile, everybody on Twitter thinks I'm the Antichrist because I hate Joe Biden so much. And, it, and it's because we don't have alternative options in this Everyone country. on Twitter also thinks I'm the Antichrist. <laughs> well, with our powers combined. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, we should start, we should chair that democracy commission, Brianna. <laughs> that's, that's how we fix America. We put you, you and I in charge of the democracy commission and make everybody in the country mad. Oh. Sounds good. There's more than one way to heal. Uh, we have more rising than you could ever possibly dream of coming up next. Stay with us. Los Angeles City Council President Nuri Martinez resigned yesterday after receiving massive backlash from audio linked, leaked online, depicting her making racist remarks last year, including about a colleague's young, young son. Let's hear some of those comments. I go, I go, where's what the bomb? Where's what bomb? And I said, Bonnie thinks he's f***ing black. That guy don't think he's black. I go, he thinks he's black. I go, the same thing. He goes, why are they so close? They're raising him like a little white kid, which I was like, this kid is a beat down. Like, let me, let me take him around the corner and then I'll bring him back. Yeah. 
In a new piece for the Los Angeles Times, columnist Gustavo Arellano argues that Nuri Martinez's rant reveals the worst enemy of Latino political power is self-sabotage. And Gustavo joins us now to discuss this further. Welcome to Rising. Gracias for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. So what, I mean, obviously I, those remarks are really, um, really contemptible. You know, what did you make of, of this whole very sorry episode? Well, how disgusting it was. The words itself, the arrogance of these people. thought they were having a private conversation. They were recorded surreptitiously and without their consent. But nevertheless, this is three of the most powerful Latinos in politics in the United States. Nuri Martinez and council members Gil Cedillo and Kevin DeLeon, who used to serve in the California legislature. And this is how they're talking behind closed doors. Yeah, of course, people are going to be upset and people are going to feel betrayed. And this is just what they say. Now they're like, oh, now these people who have been advocating so long for Latinos, turns out they are either racist or condone racism. Yeah, people are all up in arms here in Los Angeles. One of the things I think that's most interesting about, you know, reading the transcript of what happened, listening to the, the full comments, is that it does really seem to be spurred on by a kind of zero-sum politics. The focus on, um, you know, black people, the, like various council members, black children, th those kinds of things stems from a broader conversation about redistricting efforts and who's going to get what kind of a piece of the pie. Who's going to have this asset that is a money-making asset in their district and whether predominantly Latino or predominantly black districts are going to be accessed a little bit of, you know, economic benefit out of this. And it, it is it is particularly disappointing to me because it, it does seem like so often in American history, groups are pit against each other as a consequence of believing that resources are very limited and they have to scrap like crabs in a barrel to get at it. You know, do you think that seeing it through that lens is accurate? Does that in some way d diminish um um, the critique that is, is deserved in this instance to point out that, you know, there's, there are kind of broader factors operating here. Ethnic politics in the United States democracy has always been like this zero sum okay. game, bare knuckles, fisting, all that stuff, just pitch, uh, punching each other. But here's the difference with Latinos. We are now the majority in the city of Los Angeles. We are now the majority in Los Angeles County. We are the plurality in the state of California. For decades, people have been whispering, people on the right saying that all this demographic reality, that that's a reconquista, that that is Latinos taking over California, basically becoming a part of Mexico and that we were only gonna care about ourselves. And of course, that's not true. But when you're here, when you hear comments like this, it, it like throws away everything that people have been doing to push against that narrative, against that conspiracy. And, uh, you know, and. When you hear racist lingo like that, yes, it is part of the Latino culture. I'm not going to pretend it's not. But these are supposed to be the best and brightest among us. You would hope that at that point, they drop all of that. You could have those conversations. I think it's a valid conversation. How do you make Latino political power, especially a city where it's still underwhelming, how do you make it stronger? Demeaning black children using this racist language, that's not the way to do it. There's also just something kind of, um, you know, revealing about how political figures discuss just anyone, really, you know, behind closed doors when they think they're not being recorded. It's all, you know, over-the-top politeness so when they're talking to constituents or talking to the media, how, you know, how polished and perfect they are. And then you get, and then behind closed doors, they are, <laughs> you know, as nasty and in this case racist as, you know, any sort of person they might 
might be themselves railing against in other contexts. Yeah, look, our founding fathers were talking tr mad trash on each other. So let's not pretend like, oh, my God, these three council members are doing things that have never been done in American politics. But again, I have to emphasize we as Latinos, our Latino political class has to do better. If we're going to become a better country, we need to let go of what the past did because we, the what our politicians did in the past, this is why we're at the moment that we are today. Well, you have to rise above it. Is it fair to put it on them? No, but tough. You all ran for office. You're all making yourselves out to be leaders for Latinos and for other people. So you have to be better. This proves, nope, more of the same. So at that point, of course, people are going to be cynical. Uh, Latino voters are going to be cynical. And non-Latino voters are like, why should I vote for a Latino when you're just going to think of me this way? Well, that's, I think, a really strong point. And I think it's part of what some parts of the left have started to articulate around Bernie's 2016 and 2020 campaigns, that the overemphasis on identity at times obscures the extent to which that people, when you uh, you know open the open the doors and look behind the curtain, are doing the same kind of horse trading and bargaining for power, regardless of what color they are. I mean, in a world where the people in that room were looking after the interests of working class Latinos in California, then I think the conversation would not have been offensive to working class, black people, working class, white people, working class people on the whole, because the policies would be targeting folks who actually needed help. And it would be a conversation about how to get economic resources to those communities. Instead, when it gets, when it gets reduced to pure um, brinkmanship and one-upmanship between identity groups and, and characterizing districts purely on the basis of demographic realities instead of talking about class realities. It's very easy to slip into a world where we feel like we are, you know, um, Capulets and Montagues, like fighting each other <laughs> in, some, in some epic battle that's very attenuated from the reality of the world. And I think you're right. It ultimately does have a corrosive effect on the discourse. What is your prescription here? Um, what are you arguing in your piece? Well, I, I'm specifically arguing about Latinos. Everything you said is correct, and that's what I believe in, class above race. But when it comes to Latinos, it's like we are our own worst enemy. And I'm surrounded by books in the background. A lot of them about are the history of Latinos in the United States. And you have had these turf wars between ourselves for decades where you punch each other and you bring it to southern bring each other down. It's funny you mentioned earlier crabs in a bucket. That is a metaphor that Chicanos have been saying for decades that we Latinos, when one of us are slowly trying to rise to the top, nope, we pull them down out of jealousy, out of ineptness, out of whatever. And for us as Latinos, if we complain and whine and, you know, and we should complain about underwhelming Latino political power in California where we should be having more of it, you can't blame the white man. You can't blame society at large. You have to start with yourself. If you cannot own up to yourself, then you're not going to go anywhere so to hear this to hear uh nuri martinez and gil Cedillo and kevin de leon and ron Herra blaming other communities and thinking and ridiculing other communities that have nothing to do with political power that just shows there's no self-responsibility for these folks and again these are our leaders and if they're talking like that no wonder we are in the place that we are at hmm. well gustavo ariano thank you so much for joining us today we appreciate it Gra gracias for having me and we'll have more rising right after this Ohio Senate candidates Tim Ryan and J.D. Vance went head-to-head -head in a debate last night. We're going to break down some standout moments. First, Democratic Representative Tim Ryan called out GOP challenger J.D. Vance on January 6th. During the insurrection when they tried to overthrow the government, beat him upside the head with lead pipes, spray him with pepper spray. The one video we saw, the cop got jammed into the, the door, right? 
J.D. Vance raised money for the legal defense fund of the insurrectionists. This is the kind of extremism, J.D., that we wholly reject. You have video posts. Don't even try to deny it. We got, we, got your, we got your Twitter posts and everything else. Everybody's seen it. He said, help these guys with their legal defense fund. Now, you, can you imagine one guy saying out of one side of his mouth he's pro-cop, and out of the other side of his mouth he's raising money for the insurrectionists who are beating up the Capitol Police? Vance then expressed his view on whether he believes in any exceptions for abortions. Look, I've always believed in reasonable exceptions. This is a misrepresentation of my view. But let, let, let's hear it from me, not from Congressman Ryan. Uh, I, I absolutely think the 10-year-old girl, the case that we've, of course, heard a lot about, an incredibly tragic situation. I mean, look, I've got a 9-year-old baby girl at home. I cannot imagine what's that, what that's like for the girl, for her family. God forbid something that, like that would happen. I have said repeatedly on the record that I think that that girl should be able to get an abortion if she and her family so choose to do so. But let's talk about that case. Because why was a 10-year-old girl raped in our community, raped in our state in the first place? The thing the media and Congressman Ryan, they talk about this all the time, the thing they never mentioned is that, that poor girl was raped by an illegal alien, somebody that should have never been in this state in the first place. You voted so many times against border wall funding, so many times for amnesty, Tim. If you had done your job, she would have never been raped in the first place. Do your job on border security. Don't lecture me about opinions I don't actually have. Hmm. I mean, what, what has J.D. Vance actually said about abortion? Is it, is it not true that he, I mean, sorry, is it true that he has always supported restriction, um, exceptions for abortion? Because I think a lot of people are kind of hitting that line now because they saw the backlash around Roe. Yeah, the clearer backpedal was uh, Blake Masters, the mm -hmm. Arizona Republican candidate who took down, I think, uh, changed what his campaign website said, put out an ad. Uh, yeah, I mean, Republicans are, you know, reaping what they sowed here. on. A, and again, to be clear, it was very important to many social conservative Republican voters to get this win on abortion. This was an important policy outcome. And I think tactically it is perfectly defensible to take the position that you know, we will suffer a short-term political loss if it means, I mean, the, the point of politics is not just to win at politics, right? It's to influence the world the way you want. It's to influence the policies yeah. of our government. This is a policy, uh, I mean, regardless of what you think about it, it makes sense to take a political hit to implement this, to have this policy yeah. advantage. But that is clearly what happened. And I don't, I don't, I, I would have expected J.D. Vance to be a pretty extremely pro-life uh, person. I, he's saying that he's always supported some kind of uh, rape exception or it's uh, maybe there, maybe that's true. Um, yeah, I mean, he, there's also, you know, he equivocated, he, he declined to comment on whether or not he would support Lindsey Graham's federal ban on abortion. And I think, again, we talked about this a little bit in an earlier segment, non-statements or statements that allude to the fact that something is settled law are not especially credible now that we've seen what happened with the overturning of Roe and the Dobbs decision. So I do think people are right to have some concerns, regardless of what people's stated opinions are, about whether or not, if actually in office, they would increasingly ratchet up for more mm -hmm. draconian barriers to abortion, including barriers that could potentially prevent someone like that horrible 10-year-old case from actually getting an abortion. Right. I mean Ohio has become a red state. It's a it's a Republican state. Um, I don't know what the 
uh, average view of an Ohio citizen is on the abortion question. I probably they support um, abortion in some cases, some limits on I mean, abortion, most right? Of, most I don't Republicans know if, support do, do, I, support. Uh, frankly, wanted wanted Roe to be maintained, right? Like the, my, the, my yeah, go point ahead. being that I don't. Uh, Tim Ryan and JD Vance's views on this question might both be outside what the modal Ohioan is. Well, what are Tim Ryan's question? views? On, I mean, Tim Ryan isn't exactly you know Gloria Steinem here. He's not exactly yeah. like a, <laughs> some some well, less than true. Does he, yeah, does he, he support any limits on abortion? He was an extremely unappealing candidate from a progressive point of view. Uh, I spoke to Morgan Harper, who was this progressive challenger, who you know got absolutely no support from the Democratic Party, was thrown under the the bus. That might be true on sort of democratic social, your you know economic issues or something. I don't know. Well, what. economic issues, economic issues. The whole point here is I I felt very uninspired watching both of those clips because who cares? Yeah. What does it have to do with anything? I'm not going to vote for someone. Not that I live in Ohio, but my family does. I'm not going to vote for someone on the basis that oh t- you know J D Vance cultural issue. He he raised money for someone who hurt a cop at 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 one six. I'm sorry. If I'm a Democrat voting, I'm a progressive, so I'm not exactly feeling a lot of warm and fuzzies for cops. Right. Some of us haven't forgotten Uvalde. Some of us are looking at, there was this new poll that went around that should, when you just ask people, do you think that the police who have gotten all this funding and not lowered crime should instead have some of that money diverted to social services and things that are shown to minimize crime? Majorities of people, including Republicans, support that. And guess what that is called? That's called to fund the police. As long as you don't use that language, everybody supports it. Like, that's the world that we actually live in. Right. And yet we have Democratic politicians trying to run and get Democratic voters on board, or I guess maybe just conservative voters no, I think on board I think by saying this guy was mean to a cop. Well, OK, his thinking is all the Democrats are voting for him anyway. How does he chip away at some moderate Republicans, some independents? I hope and all the Democrats to- are voting because people are going to have to turn out. He's, he needs people in Democratic areas of Ohio, like places like Cleveland and Cincinnati, where my I family lives, to turn I, I bet you many none of my family members ever heard of Tim Ryan and aren't going any. I mean, not my immediate family, but mm-hmm. my extended family. No one's enthusiastic about Tim Ryan, especially with that kind of rhetoric that doesn't foreground how he's going to economically help people in a distressed state, people of all colors, and in a state that has been decimated by the kind of trade policies that Donald Trump talked about at length. Industries closed down, hollow shells of a city. When my mother was growing up in Cleveland, Ohio, it was the sixth biggest city in America, and it is far from that today. And I would like to see more commentary from both gentlemen about how they're going to turn that state of affairs around. Right. And that's something, I mean, that's something J.D. Vance has talked about at great length. His whole book is kind of about that. No, it's not. It's about the hollowing out of I mean, Appalachia. I mean, it, is, um, I mean, it blames on the Appalachian blaming. people yes. for their own problems. But, yes. Um, Yes, which is not the kind of, I'm sorry, systemic critique that people need. The uh, Appalachians are some of the most independent, hardworking, truly like labor-oriented and heroic people in the entire country. And it was, I think it's, it's a real... It's it's a it's a real disgrace that he characterized them that way and was willing to throw his own people under the bus in that way when they have been hit hard by any number of economic and social policies that devastated them as a community. Look, obviously, I agree; those are the main things they should be talking about. I don't think it's crazy to to call out JD Vance for because to win. I mean, this is the problem Republicans face: to win in the Republican primary, you have to take positions on sort of like MAGA issues like January six that are so unappealing to a general electorate that then the Dem- it's tactically smart to make the Demo- have for the Democrat to make you pay for that. Later. Yeah, look, I, I get it. I just hope, and obviously we just watched a couple of clips there, yeah. but I just, I would hope that the most clippable, salacious, inspiring 
part of a debate like that with someone championing how they're going to help the life improve the lives of people who live in Ohio. I would not expect that <laughs> from the candidates for yeah. office at any time, but uh, there you have it. More rising right after this. I can no longer remain in today's Democratic Party that's under the complete control of an elitist cabal of warmongers who are driven by cowardly wokeness, who divide us by racializing every issue and stoking anti-white racism, who actively work to undermine our God-given freedoms that are enshrined in our Constitution, who are hostile to people of faith and spirituality, who demonize the police but protect criminals at the expense of law-abiding Americans, who believe in open borders, who weaponize the national security state to go after their political opponents, and above all, who are dragging us ever closer to nuclear war. Now, I believe in a government that's of the people, by the people, and for the people. Unfortunately, today's Democratic Party does not. Instead, it stands for a government that is of, by, and for the powerful elite. Now, I'm calling on my fellow common sense, independent-minded Democrats to join me in leaving the Democratic Party. If you can no longer stomach the direction that the so-called woke Democratic Party ideologues are taking our country, then I invite you to join me. That was former Democratic presidential candidate and Hawaii representative Tulsi Gabbard announcing she is officially leaving Team Blue, which does that come as a surprise to you, Brianna? I don't know. It's interesting watching that statement because I kind of had presumed that she articulated a that she was going to join the Republican Party? No, she did not say that. Uh, she said she's going to be independent for the time being. Maybe she's eventually going to join the Republican Party, my party, Libertarians. I guess the Greens could put in a bid. Yeah, it, it's, it's interesting because, you know, I don't identify as a Democrat, but I also, for those who aren't kind of invested in characterizing me in a bad faith manner, I'm very obviously critical consistently of the Republican Party. And my issue is that we live in a corporate duopoly where both parties are captured by corporate interest. And so much of what she says in that clip is, I think, accurate. The problem is that by omitting the critique of the Republican Party, she leads people to believe that the direction to move, to get away from the plutocracy, to get away from all of the capture that she describes, to get away from some of the focus on culture issues that I do think comes at the expense of talking about the interests of working class people, is to go to the right. And I think that that, that is the biggest mistake here. But I also, I wanted to ask you, what do you make of the emphasis on you know the Democrats as stoking anti-white um, anti-white extremism or, or whatever she called it, you know, is the Republican Party kind of openly embracing a sort of identity politics where they've seen how the game is played and they're, they're happy to embrace kind of making every issue about race, even when it seems kind of shoehorned in like this, as the Democrats are? Well, yeah, I, I mean, I think the answer to that question is yes. Um, it's so the, the criticism of Democrats for making everything about race or stoking anti the, the wokeness of Democrats is usually so, so that accusation is lobbed against the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, when people say that people on the right say that, they're not actually talking about Democrat, most Democratic officials, maybe some you know, the school board in some California place or something, uh, or, or Democratic voters who are not, who, who 
you know, outside elite circles in progressive cities are not nearly as woke as you would think. Mm. Um, they're talking about activists, mm -hmm. celebrity activists, people on Twitter, mm -hmm. um, educators, professors, uh, you know, the, your, uh, your um, anti-racist anti educators, journalists, yeah. Those people um, have, or somehow those people have become Spo the spokespersons for the Democratic Party well, without somehow. without being. I mean, they've been doing the yeah. work themselves, but yeah. also there's been you know the libs of TikTok and stuff that have really yeah. foregrounded the most identity focused right. aspects of the broad. And then coalition. they'll say, right, this is Joe Biden's party. Right. This is what. Right. Wait, it's really well. It's not. Right. Joe Biden doesn't. Joe Biden agree with those things, but wouldn't can spell LGBTQIA. Right. <laughs> I mean. Right, and many Democratic voters don't feel that way right. either. Yeah. We, we, as we showed how well Joe Biden did. Right. Um, and the cop but, stuff is... Well, yeah. So so that's... So, so it's a frustration with the people who speak in favor of the Democratic Party. But on policy, she is very right that... Uh, I mean, and she, she said that... The only thing she repeated there that she said twice was the anti-war part. Mm -hmm. And... That is a substantive policy that is mm -hmm. shaping up to be a not a policy disagreement necessarily because there are a lot of Republicans who feel the same uh, Republican officials who are supporting the same thing. But to the extent there's any dissension from what we're doing in Ukraine, it is almost exclusively coming from Republicans. Yeah. And uh, and she said that twice, and it's you know something we feel passionately about. Yeah. Obviously, our viewers know, and you know if you're. And she has long been a critic of, you know, an interventionist form of nation building. Yes. And if that is your main jam, if that is the thing you're most concerned about, it's not wrong to be make that your main jam. In fact, probably more people should make foreign policy their main thing yeah. as opposed to some of these culture, ba ba uh, culture battles because we're killing people. People right. are dying. So if that's your main focus, and maybe it ought to be, I see why she would say, I no longer have a home yeah. in the Democratic so Party, there, in Joe Biden's Democratic Party, because that aspect of it is Yeah, them. so I think there is some real consistency there. And what, when you were talking, what it made me think of is, you know, Tulsi Gabbard was someone, I believe the only elected Democrat who endorsed Bernie in 2016. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people on the left really valued the courage that she showed in that moment and the political hit that she took in that moment for doing so. And the reason why she felt this fidelity to Bernie Sanders was in part because of his anti-war stance. So I do want to say, while I do wish he were more vocal in this moment, he has recently called for peace and de-escalation and I think is still the best of what is on the left. But, you know, to the extent that you were looking for someone to carry that mantle, she previously had looked around and seen it in an independent senator from Vermont. It is frustrating now that instead of still pushing as a progressive vanguard and potentially styling herself as an inheritor to the Bernie mm -hmm. crown, which there, it was an open field, like a lot of people could have, would have appreciated her trying to fill that void, that she is making a different kind of choice where, again, she didn't say so explicitly. The implication is, though, that there is a more of a conservative pivot, especially when you talk about some of, when she brings up these issues like um, the policing issue, yeah, which is very much in conflict with some of the points that she made before. She was a star of the Democratic primary debates in 2019. We played that clip she, uh, yesterday. We played it yesterday. She gathered Kamala Harris, yeah. just completely gathered Kamala Harris on her legitimately terrible criminal justice record in California as she styled herself as a so-called progressive prosecutor. It was complete malarkey. Now, Senator Harris says she's proud of her record as a prosecutor and that she'll be a prosecutor president, but I'm deeply concerned about this record. There are too many examples to cite, but 
She put over 1,500 people in jail for marijuana violations and then laughed about it when she was asked if she ever smoked marijuana. She blocked evidence. She blocked evidence that would have freed an innocent man from death row until the courts forced her to do so. She kept people in prison beyond their sentences to use them as cheap labor for the state of California. And she fought to keep cash you, bail system in place that impacts poor people in the worst kind of way. And for her to have gone from a place where she was rightly pointed out, pointing out Kamala Harris's hypocrisy and the underlying point that that kind of approach to criminal justice does nothing to lower crime and everything to target historically marginalized communities and poor people of every race, to pivot to Democrats do, you know, hate cops too much for me to be around them. Like you, well, were, you were the top cop slayer. That's why we loved you. Well, I, 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 so I don't know if there's a tension there. There could be a tension there, but I don't know for sure. You can object to, uh, you know, raise the points she did in that debate about how low-level drug offenders have been locked away and we drugs should be legalized anyway and all that, which is a view I hold. Like you can hold that view and then also think that, you know, democratic policies with respect to police and like addressing crime are Biden not... Biden increased funding to police. All they do is give more and more money to Progressive police. prosecutors not taking the problem of inner city violence seriously How enough so? can be different than... By not wanting more funding, by not locking up more low-level drug offenders, the likes of which you agree shouldn't be in jail or should be funneled into treatment programs which aren't getting enough funding. What is the specific... Po Look, I don't want anybody to be murdered killed, beat up on the street, have feces rubbed on them. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants any of those things. Mm -hmm. But when she says stuff like this, when conservative, not that she has come out as a conservative, but when broadly speaking, conservatives make arguments like this, the implication that not just broadly, but liberals, a lot of people, that liberals and left people who are disproportionately the ones that are living in those environments and subject to the consequences of, you know, violent crime are indifferent. That, that is just patently untrue. But we have to be having an honest conversation. If she wants to be a political leader in this space, you have have to be willing to be honest about what does work and what doesn't work and be specific on a policy front about what you're advocating for and not do this kind of abstract gesturing at the idea that Democrats are soft on crime, which is what Nixon did, Reagan did, every Southern um, Dixiecrat did, right up into the present. Bill Clinton did, Joe Biden did. And what has that brought us? What has that brought us in the world? All of that tough on crime, libs are bad argument has got us exactly where we here with uh, where we are with the crime situation. Our uh, progressive has never been in charge of our criminal a lot justice of, policy. A lot of those, uh, some, many of those eras were eras of genuine falling crime, and we're not yes, quite in an era like cyclical. that now. They have well, to do with the economy. They have to do with how much lead paint people are ingesting. They have to do with a lot of things that have nothing to do with posturing on a public stage and saying we need to fund the police harder. Well, I don't know that she said we need to fund the police. She didn't say we need to fund. Okay. I, look, I would be interested. So, I'm saying I would be interested to hear. And in fact, we would. I would love to have her on the show. We've tried to get her on. We'll still aspire. I know she's been on the show. I don't know if she's ever been on while well, I've been hosting. I know Crystal and Sagar had her on before, I think. So I would love to hear more for her, from her on how she thinks through some of these yeah. police issues I, I in agree. light of her and other... I, and, um, and to your point, like I, I agree... The, the people who are frustrated with her right now on the left should be calling for specifics, not necessarily, I think, yeah. making drawing conclusions or projecting onto them what they think that she is saying. I do think, you know, there's a lot that can hide in the vagueness. And I think that sometimes people are intentionally vague because it can create a bigger tent. But pressing her on the details of what she actually believes and what she's advocating for would either clarify whether these are really legitimate critiques that are coming at her as being a, a kind of a sellout yeah. and a right winger and a traitor, or whether or not she 
you know, is potentially willing to advocate for some things that are genuinely left. Not just the military non-interventionist issues, but some substantive domestic policy as well. Yeah. But I don't, sometimes I, 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 like, I don't know what all the answers are in a lot of these questions because I also, I don't want to over-police people. I'm skeptical in general of the police. I don't really want to give them more funding. I know how police violate the rights of all sorts of people. You know, I, I want all drugs to be decriminalized, et cetera, et cetera, and so on and so on. But I do look and see the rising crime. And I don't know what the answer is. I, mean, I don't think it's necessarily more funding, but I am, I am unsatisfied with what's happening and I want to hear thoughtful people have what are their ideas to fix these problems. Well, let's let's talk to Tulsi about it. Tulsi, oh, you're more than welcome on Rising. We'd love to hear you out. <laughs> well, tomorrow on Rising, we'll have another great show for you. You have to trust us on this. This is what the teleprompter is saying. Uh, so you have to trust the producers, actually. But, no, you can trust us, too. Well, now I want to know. What's, <laughs> what's, what's the big reveal? Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. And we're also officially on Roku, Vizio, and the Plex TV app. So be sure to check us out if you'd rather watch us via your smart TV device. You have a smart TV, Brianna? I do. I've got a projector thingy. A projector thingy? Yeah, it's a smart projector. That's cool. It's my first TV ever. I'm like a late millennial and I'm excited about it. I got it a few months ago. I can move it around the house. So you do like a drive-in movie theater, watch Rising kind of environment? Uh-huh. That's how I watched my Game of Thrones last night on my projector on my kitchen cabinet so I could watch it while I oh, ate. We'll have to talk more about that tomorrow. <laughs> All right. Stay with us for the rest of the week. We'll see you later. Bye-bye.